begin? Yeah. Want to get started? Go for it. I appreciate Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I think <clears throat> wrapping our heads around the vocabulary is a huge part of responding to this because <clears throat> they have hijacked so many biblical words, but also are introducing new words that uh, nobody really knows what they quite mean yet. And uh, unfortunately, they uh, have double meanings. And they intentionally, some, many of these activists intentionally. Um, use words that have double meanings like that, and there's a lot of examples we could give. Thank you. Right. So the question Daniel asked me to repeat the questions for the sake of those listening to the recording later. So um, your question, if I heard it right, is <clears throat> who are the thought leaders of this movement? Who are those who are driving the train and uh, who, are, who are in control of this? Um, there's a lot of history we could go into. I'm going to try to be succinct. But <clears throat> what, uh, what many have, uh, well, going back to, to Karl Marx briefly, who is a guy early in the 1900s who... Um, essentially was the first to say we can split all humanity into oppressed and oppressed and that the way we can tell who is oppressed and is the, are the have-nots and the oppressors are the haves, that basically because someone has more than someone else, you can tell that some kind of injustice has taken place. <clears throat> and he had a view of history that is almost godlike. He believed that inevitably what's going to happen is that the oppressed are going to uh, all rise up together and that's where the phrase, workers of the world unite, comes from. It was one of his slogans, <clears throat> one of their slogans. And they're going to overthrow their oppressors, the, the, the haves, and uh, their, their rulers, so to speak. And that um, then they will be ushered in a time. They're going to take control of authority, implement uh, some kind of collectivism, some kind of socialism or communism, uh, something, one, one of those in there. And I'm not an expert on Marxism by any means, but he believed that was a temporary state until everything was made right, and then it was going to be, an, not anarchy, but, but there was going to be no hierarchy anymore, that it was going to be in a perfect, essentially, utopia, okay? Well, some of his followers later were wrestling with the idea, this is after the World Wars, um, why did the workers of the world not unite? Why did not everybody uh, rise up? And uh, that's when they started thinking, well, maybe it's because they have a false consciousness. They think they're not oppressed. They, th they think they're happy, but really they're being oppressed and they just don't know it. So they need to develop a critical consciousness and we need everyone to, to wake up, to 
be woke to what is actually happening to them. And once they're aware of how they're being oppressed, then they're going to rise up. And you can see how then it wasn't, for, for Marx, it was very much about money, about economics, about material possessions, who has and who doesn't. And that's how you tell who's oppressed and who's, who's oppressor. But for this later group, um, they, they believe, the Frankfurt School and others would be, their, be the name, a name you could look up if you wanted to, they believed it was also about cultural production. So in other words, religion, they think, is keeping people down. And other stories we tell each other, uh, 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 the entertainment we consume, and all these ideas floating around in the culture, these are keeping people uh, docile, right, and happy, and they don't realize how oppressed they are. And so for them, it became more about cultural. You've heard, maybe heard the term called this uh, uh, cultural Marxism. Well, Many um, in the 60s, with a lot of the, a lot of the movements and, and revolution happening in the 60s, um, many of these radicals felt that their movement had failed. So what'd they do? Well, they went and got tenured uh, jobs in universities. And um, <clears throat> one, of, one of the phrases that was used early on in cultural Marxism is they said, we need to go on a long march through the institutions. And I think what we're seeing today is essentially that they have... They have succeeded. The tenured um, professors who were the activists of the 60s have now uh, discipled generations of Americans who have gone out into every single field. And that's why um, we we're essentially seeing this everywhere now. And uh, so that's some of the thought leaders. Uh, there are some, I would say, some financiers of this movement who aren't necessarily who don't necessarily believe everything that, the, that this ideology, involved in this ideology, but they're using it. Um, it it's it's a, that they're using it for political purposes because what they do want is for uh, society to be reformed in, in the image that they want, their utopia they think that they can implement by um, unsettling everything, by upsetting everything. Anyone else? Sorry, that was a long answer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, um, there's <clears throat> there's a lot of of um, denigrating of what people call nationalism. The problem is that terms used for lots of different things. Uh, some people, when they condemned nationalism, what they when they condemn nationalism, what they mean is <clears throat> they don't like it when Christians are, for instance, finding their hope and their essentially looking to the state to save them, right? That we've got problems, all these problems, and we need government to fix them. It's true. Jesus is our final and only hope. We have to, uh, uh, hearts have to be reformed, not just, not just states. And it's going to happen uh, in hearts before it happens in, 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 uh, in the country, in society. Um, <clears throat> nevertheless, there is also, what also is being condemned when nationalism is uh, being denigrated. Often today, people, are, what they're denigrating is just a, a um, gratefulness for their country, a praise of God for 
in his providence, letting us be born in a very prosperous nation uh, with laws that were that came that were influenced greatly by his word. There's nothing wrong with that with that uh, uh, gratefulness any more than there's than there's it's wrong to be glad that I'm part of my family. I liked my family. They blessed me in many ways. And even if they were a horrible family, they were mine, right? There is something about that that is perfectly fine that God recognizes, um, and he does not expect that. As long as, as long as that doesn't go too far into being blind to the failures of your people, of your family, of your nation, it is fine to have, um, to have a healthy appreciation for the place that God has ordained you be, uh, you to be, and for you to belong to. Um, those financiers that I mentioned, those who are funding this movement, the utopia they want to bring about is globalistic. In other words, they want states, nation states, to have to submit to international organizations. This is one reason why they really, really want borders to essentially be done away with. They want you to think of yourself as a global citizen. Um, people are going to think it's crazy to say something like one world government, but if you read their, their uh, writings, this is essentially what some of them want to do, that they would never use that term because they know people think conspiracy theory if you say that. Um, but nevertheless, they denigrate nationalism in favor of globalism. That's what those two ideas mean. And uh, the fact of the matter is, God says there's still going to be nations in heaven, um, and which is why I think it's that, that's a perfectly fine thing. I hope that answers your question. Do you have anything to add to that? It's very complex. Any other questions? Right. It's true. Right. Yeah. The Rockefellers was big in this movement back years ago. Mm-hmm. And many of your money people is behind this. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's people often, um, yeah, people often through just convenience uh, give away freedoms or give away privacy. Um, they carry microphones into bathrooms. Uh, they, <laughs> they, uh, they, uh, but we all are carrying a microphone with us at all times, um, and uh, and regardless of how risky you think that is. The truth is, if you listen to Eastern uh, Europeans who have uh, who, who spent time under uh, totalitarianism in um, Eastern European countries, they are, they are, think we're crazy to have an Alexa in our house or something. Or, you know, they, they just do, they are incredibly distrusting because they have seen, they've seen the human impulse when they have a lot of authority to want to control everything. And, um, I would say in addition to globalism, uh, there's also a part of this, a part of 
the, the agenda is totalitarianism, the desire to want to control almost every act, the total as, uh, 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 the total of society, including influencing your religion, influ influencing your thought and, and your speech. Um, it is scary to think what the totalitarian leaders of the, 20, of, the, of the 20th century could have done with the technology that now uh, would be at their disposal. It's true. You mean if our children are espousing this or if our children are being exposed to it? Okay. So the question is, if, our, if, children, if we find that our children are being exposed to this, what do we do? Well, I think what, whenever we believe that we've been wronged or someone under our care like our children has been wronged, I think the, the, the framework we always need to have in our mind is Matthew 18, which uh, Daniel tells me, you've been talking about church discipline and how that functions in the church, um, that says essentially go to someone one-on-one first um, and, and talk to them about it. If they are, do not repent, then take one or two others. So you have the two or three witnesses. And if they still don't listen, go to the church. That's the framework we should have in our head. Now, a school or in your community, that's not a church. We know that. But there are still principles there. Uh, I think most times it is worthwhile, if you have the ability to, go to someone one-on-one -on -one and say, hey, did this happen? If they're willing to confess it, uh, and just admit it out there. Well, you don't need to go evidence shopping. They, they said it. Um, they've, they've confessed it. Um, but the, you may not have um, authorities in the community or in the, in the school who are sympathetic to you, that, that agree with you. Yes, you've been wronged. At that point, um, in the same way that, that you know, if you're in a church where uh, pastors are ignoring obvious sin, you do need to go find a true church that will uh, that will handle that uh, handle it correctly. Um, so when when you were talking about our children being exposed to it, first of all, let me say this: you do not. When a sin is already public, it is okay for the first for your first objection to it to also be public. There's a pattern in the New Testament where if an elder, for instance, has sinned uh, publicly, that the repentance needs to be as necessary as the sin. Now, you, you could be generous to go to them privately first and give them that opportunity, but especially when the person doing something wrong is not someone you can go to, you go to privately, it's okay to, if they've you know, uh, said something um, that was, that was um, unbiblical online, for instance, to respond to them online where other people can also see it. That's, that's not inappropriate. Paul openly rebuked uh, people who were uh, committing uh, false teaching in the church with letters, uh, with his letters that were being read openly in the church. So he was not afraid to, um, to uh, rebuke them publicly. Let's put that that way. It's, it's a hard question. Labriska just told me on our drive here that someone we know locally has met, uh, ran into, uh, met a teacher who is very much on board with teaching this gender theory to, to children. And it, it has rocked her world because uh, she thought it was somewhere out there, not, not here. Um, it's going to come here faster than we think. And, and it's, um, 
it's our responsibility not to be deceived. Um, we, we, we need to not be naive about it and uh, take it seriously when we see it and not just be comfortable and pray for the best. No, these children are under our protection and our care and we need to do what's necessary. And if, it's, if, if, if we don't have the ability or the, the, the resources to um, find another option for our children that are, in, that are in, uh, facing this teaching in public schools, for instance, I believe churches should step up and help people to, uh, to make to make, to make sure those kids' minds are safe. Is there something you want to add to that? Great question. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, the question was, how can we be proactive instead of reactive? How can we prepare our children for this rather than just respond to it and be surprised and react when we find out they've been exposed to it? Um, I think that's a really good impulse because uh, too often, yeah, our, um, our kids have questions they, they, or they, they, they have categories in their mind that they have not um, that. that they have not filled with biblical teaching yet, and the world is going to be there quick, really fast, to answer those questions for them and give them the categories to think of it in. And then you're going to come home and have to undo, to break down that structure to, before you rebuild it with biblical thinking, biblical, a biblical framework. And so um, I think the days of having the talk are over, for instance, when it comes to sexual issues cannot be one talk, as uncomfortable as that is. We need to constantly, I don't mean constantly as in every single day, but we, we need to be on a regular basis discussing these issues that scripture talks, is unafraid and unashamed and unembarrassed to talk about all the time because the world is going to try to do it. The world is going to try to fill in that gap if we don't have it already filled in with biblical, with a biblical worldview. Um, I'll be honest, I try to, um, I try to not, not just because of these worldly ideologies, but also because of the pre- prevalence of sexual abuse today. Uh, part of my background was actually working in a, um, uh, a secular rehabilitation center for teenage sex offenders. Um, some, some kids as young as 11 who were committing sexual offenses against other children. It's a very serious issue. It is very prevalent um, in all manner of families, urban, rural, public school, churches, doesn't matter. And as a means of preventing that, of, uh, it, I think it's incredibly wise to, in words that they can understand, um, without giving them too much information that awakens curiosity before it should, before we should, but also that it's, it's speaking to them as best we can um, at the stage they're at. We, we need to start introducing our kids to these topics way sooner than we used to. It's just, I think it's necessary in this culture. Any other questions? If not, I do have questions I want to kind of banter back and forth. Yeah. With you, and it's best if I just, I think, stand up. Sure. So, I think, as I've listened to the talk, I think it's really good, really helpful. And I think I let me give you guys a story, just to give you kind of some background. Do you think this is not far, like, this is like maybe like a far distant reality? We saw, I was talking to you, you just want to explain the story, you know the story. <laughs> you were like, 
well, well, I got a call from him on a Sunday afternoon, and he was just, I think you were dumbfounded. Is that uh, a correct word? Guys, I, like, I mean, I never thought I'd see, like, a situation like what we talked about today uh, in the tri-state area. Like, literally, yeah. I think that was my mindset prior to this. But good. I, yeah, from, I what, from what I remember, you told me that you knew a girl who had gone to Frostburg State University um, who was well-known for being a social justice warrior on campus and uh, calling out racism and known for making accusations, I assume. And I believe she also had something, to some sort of position on David Trone's staff, students, something like that. Anyway, uh, one of our representatives. And um, a particular African-American student at Frostburg said that she had regularly been getting um, uh, racist messages online. Just, uh, I believe, private messages that were horrible, horribly insulting, uh, truly bigoted, racist things. And um, that this person, this, this, this white girl, who was known as the social justice warrior, was comforting her. And she appreciated the comfort that she was getting from this person. And then... She was even paying, paying her reparations. She was paying her... paying her reparations. Like, to, to show her that she's so much of a friend. Go ahead. Yeah. And, and by the way, on the subject of reparations, there are literally websites, I think one's called reparations.me, where black people put up request for help and financially, and white people are supposed to, to pay it. It's a real thing. Well, it comes out that <clears throat> this white social justice warrior was the one sending the racist messages. What's happening in your reaction? No, I mean, I, guys, I mean, I'll say it like this. This is coming to us whether we realize it or not. This is, we need to get our mind, and I think I was really impressed, and thank you, coming and talking about justice, this is not a political issue. When we hear what we talked about today and we hear political issues, what's actually happening is racism. <laughs> like, like, this is yeah. a biblical, true justice thing, and I'm seeing far too many brothers and sisters be, just be like, oh, well, that's political. I don't want to be political. I don't care if we label abortion political. I don't care if we m label justice political. Right. It's, it's a God thing. Like, it's a, it's a biblical human identity issue. I mean, like, I don't know. I, I just, yeah. just want to give you that story just to know, like, this is in our backyard. This is not far away in some distant land. This is being taught, I think, to our children. So discipleship, like, it's already a thing that we need to be doing with our children. Like, but we do it because, like, even beyond CRT. I mean, like, Ryan, Ryan is one of the better people I've seen as far as discipling his children. We need to see this. Like, it, it's not just something that's like a negotiable, well, I'll get to discipline and praying with my children someday. No, we need to do this now, today. Like, and for no other reason than, like, 20 years ago, maybe evil, wickedness, pornography, things like that would, would like, out here in left field. Now, if, you, if your child has a phone, that's one click away, okay? So, like, just, just so we're clear, like, this, is, this stuff's coming to them. It's not, like, so I, I'm not trying to scare us, but I'm trying to give us, like, a a real picture of what, what reality is. I mean, I don't yeah. know. Do you have anything to say no. to that? I just want us to <clears> be agree. aware, and I'm not doing this <clears> to give us, like, the boogeyman in the closet or anything like that. I just want us to realize, like, this is a serious thing. And yeah. God has given this for us to do. So I don't know. Do yeah, know no, absolutely. One, one part I want to point out is that part of critical theory is they hate binaries. They hate that we set up male and female, that we set up... <clears throat> that we set up um, 
you know, uh, what, are, what other examples we could use, male and female, thin and fat. They think, no, it's all just on a spectrum. We need to destroy those distinctions. Um, critical race theory is kind of its own beast because it, it says that, but then it says, but to fight it, we need to, we need to exacerbate those distinctions and talk about race all the time. That's a little bit different. But they bring down, they want to bring down, obviously, male and female for the transgenderism. They want to bring down um, the fat and thin. How dare you? They literally claim fatness is not a, <clears throat> is not a health issue or it's, it's not unhealthy. Um, it, it's really strange. Uh, the critical animal studies literally says, oh, humans are just more sophisticated animals, therefore animals have right. I mean, that's where they go. Where this is leading is how dare you say there's a distinction between adults and children. That, that is next on this list. This will, I guarantee you today, as crazy as I might sound, this is going to lead to advocating for, um, for pedophilia and for bestiality. It, it's, it's next on the list. It's, just, it's, it's gross to even think about, but that's what your parents were thinking. That's what your grandparents were thinking uh, before suddenly um, same-sex marriage was a topic of debate and now is essentially fundamentally accepted in both of the major political parties. So in closing, I just want to say, I, yeah, I don't want to say the sky is falling. I don't want to say the, the boogeyman. Their civilizations have come and have gone, and the church has remained. This is Jesus' church. Jesus, the church is Jesus' bride. It will not fall. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But the church will prevail because of the faithfulness of believers like us who cling to his word and apply it to the situation that they're in. Uh, it, it, it is ultimately not up to us, and yet uh, God calls us to participate. Sure. And I, I just recently read a book on this. Like it's, it's a book I'm hoping even maybe to do for Sunday school. It's called, it's, he's mentioned it, I think, at one point. Either way, in it, though, one of the applications he gives is actually for us actually the first start by seeing, like, are any of these wicked ideologies in us, okay? So, like, before we go, like, beating down the neighbor's door and being like, we got to get rid of critical race theory, we need to start in our own hearts. And here's, let me just give you one, and I see this one, I see this everywhere. I see this in evangelical, and this is older than probably critical theory, but, like, feminism. Let me give you one. The, the idea that men and women, they are equal in value, hear me rightly, in God's eyes, they are equal in value but they are different in roles, okay? So the idea, the idea that we're the same, that we should do the same thing. There are more marital tensions. There are more things I have in studying marriages and studying how to help marriages. That role distinction, if that's not present, there's just so much fighting I've seen happen. I don't know, do yep. you, you wanna give any other, like what, what are some ways maybe we see this worked out in our families or way we can start even sure. look, checking our own hearts to see right. like, is this present in us and as you look for that, I mean, you're able to distinguish, hey, my child's believing this. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. What are some other ones? Well, believe? one thing I would say is fathers uh, and mothers. When you are in your home, when the courtroom is the kitchen, right? When the courtroom is the front porch, and one of your children come to you accusing the other one of he did this, do you just believe him without any evidence? Or do your kids know that, well, I could do that same sin, and they're going to get a lighter treatment? That, or I'm going to get a harder treatment than they would. Uh, Joseph was the favorite in Jacob's family, and it says his brothers couldn't even speak to him. They, they hated him so much. Favoritism is a flame that within a generation can become a bonfire, 
And we have to root out that partiality, even in our own hearts, because we, we are functioning in some sense as, as a judge between them. And we don't think about that, but, but in studying this issue, it made me realize I need to be more careful than to just go, well, this, this kid's been doing this all week. I'm sure they did it this time. Well, oh, no, you lied. You lied. The accuser lied this time. Or I need to, um, I'm not saying that we be um, naive and and. Even when the evidence is looking us right in the eye, we say, no, I'm not going to do anything about this um, until I have proof. But at the same time, um, we, when the proof is there, we, we need to, to do the right thing, discipline our children. And it brings us so much peace in a home when our children know our dad especially, our, our father especially, is a firm and good judge who will do what is right. There's not a differing standard from day to day depending on his mood that particular evening. us go long, but I'd love to even almost tease this out further at some point. Maybe, maybe well, every one of these six doctrines could be its own Absolutely. sermon, I guarantee you. Absolutely. But I, I don't know, any other final questions? Anything in closing? How about any, do you have any good books for us? To, go ahead, sorry. Absolutely, and, and you're involved in that, in that fight that in the public sphere very much so. Um, we forget that the reason John the Baptist um, lost his head was not because, oh, he was, preaching the, he was preaching the gospel, and people just didn't like he was preaching the gospel. No, what did he do? They didn't, they didn't like his Sunday school teacher. No, what he did was he publicly pointed out the ruler at the time and said, you're in sin. You have your brother's wife. That's not, that is not Correct. It's not, it, oftentimes the persecution does not come because, well, you're a Christian and I hate Christians. No, it's because you're a Christian and your faithfulness is getting in the way of their sin. That is often why Christians are persecuted. Not because, oh, everyone's going to know. It's because I'm, a, no, it's, you're just getting in their way. And, and John the Baptist, uh, he died to make a public, to publicly point out sin that was happening. Um, now we can, we can get overly focused on, um, on social action, on fighting the sin in society rather than in evangelism and preaching the gospel because that is an error we often see in, in woke Christians is they put, push evangelism down in order to overemphasize social action. We need to feed the poor. We need to, uh, we need to fight sex trafficking. We need to feed the hungry. Of course, we do all of that, but you know what? A hungry, poor, uh, I should say it this way, a well-fed, well-educated, clothed person can still go to hell, and all you've done is make his journey there more comfortable. Yeah. How do we make sure that we're not obscuring evangelism and the gospel in our good works? 
Yeah, the biblical category for that is good works or, or works of mercy. We, we are, um, is not, <clears throat> and the problem we see in many of the, uh, the, the woke Christians is that they say, well, racial justice is the gospel or, or this good work in society is the gospel. Well, no, it's an implication of the gospel. It's an, ap- it's an application of the gospel. In other words, when the gospel takes root in your heart and changes you and the hearts around you, it's going to lead you to have compassion to others because God had compassion on you. Uh, it's a, it, it flows from the gospel. It is not the gospel itself. And so we must always remember, we care about suffering, but we have to prioritize eternal suffering way more than we do temporary suffering. And you know what? To a world that doesn't think eternity is coming, that looks, that looks hateful. How dare you spend all your time sp- spreading your ideas instead of actually doing something? What they don't realize is we are saving people from flames that are worse than any suffering they can experience right now on the earth. There's a, <clears throat> there's a common phrase um, that says <clears throat> politics is downstream from culture. And, and essentially <clears throat> what that means is what people who live in a society think, and, uh, think is going to affect the government that they get. Uh, generally, I think people get the government they deserve. But you know what is upstream from culture? Religion. And you know what? When there was a society that was uh, generally uh, Christian, that it was Christianized, not everyone was a Christian, but it was influenced uh, most greatly by Christianity, was it perfect? Absolutely not. But that religion made it, that Christian religion, the churches, made it a Christian culture, so to speak. And that culture affected the government that was put in place. And one of the only reasons we have as much freedom as we do today is because those documents are still in place. Um, and so, I, just, just speaking to this gentleman here, and we, <clears throat> I told him, the only way out of this is revival. And so it's not a matter of individually, um, you, you're, you might do most of your work on a social, social action. There are going to be individuals who, uh, just because of their job, they're going to be doing more good works in the form and works of mercy in the form of fighting abortion or other injustice or meeting needs, um, relieving suffering on a daily basis and not have as many opportunities to evangelize. That's not wrong. What I'm talking about is that in our hearts, we have to remember what is the main goal and if that we ever have to choose between one or the other. We, we choose evangelism. We choose missions. If you think about talking about this today, I said it once, I want to continue to reiterate it. We're not talking about politics. You know how many, I told people what we were talking, we just had a conference the other day, and I told people what we were talking about when coming, coming home, and I had multiple pastors say, oh, don't touch that. And I'm like, no, like, we touch what God touches, and justice is something God touches, yeah. okay? So don't, don't have, like, these, the, listen, I'm not saying pastors are bad, but we need to, we need to care about what God cares about. Okay, so just, that's the last thing I want to yeah. say. And I just, again, that was, multiple pastors all said the same thing. They're like, well, wouldn't want to touch that. And I want to be right. like, no, we need to want to touch what God touches, okay? We need to not shrink back from what God shrinks back. He doesn't shrink back from, okay? So that's just the last thing I really Politics want to affects image bearers. Yeah. That's, that's why we, that's why um, if we have an opportunity to influence it, that's not wrong. Absolutely. It's not the gospel, but it's also not wrong. You want to pray for us? Absolutely. Lord, we praise you for 
for giving your word that is a sure standard in a time when we are buffeted by every wind and wave of doctrine. We ask that we would not be double-minded, but that we would be sure-footed, standing strongly on your word, word, that people would be able to look to us and say that that person has a stability and an integrity that is rare in our time. May we not be like those in the time of the judges who did everything that was right in their own eyes, but that we would submit to the king. That we, would, that we would be faithful to the king's law and seek to apply it to every aspect of our life. That we would remember that despite, though the world used to say that, uh, though the world would claim to say that we're not allowed to, to speak into the public sphere, into politics or whatever they want to call it, they are trying to redefine that to include biblical topics that we must speak on. Let us not fall for the, uh, the schemes that are being used against us. May we find good resources, good teachers of your word that give us strength, that give us understanding and wisdom as we navigate this time. We ask that we would keep the gospel front and center and that you, we would see great fruit. We pray ultimately for revival, that your spirit would move across this land, would bring revival, and that your law would again be respected and honored, and Christ would be worshiped. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.